Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, October the 1st, 2019. This is episode 2,521 of the Survival Podcast. That's 2521. I just like that number. I don't know why, but I do. Uh, anyway, we're going to have a Just Jack show today, as we usually do on a Tuesday. Uh, today's show is called Solutions to, Solutions to Some of Our Biggest Problems. This show started out by looking at all the problems that we have. When I say this show, I don't mean today's show. I mean this show, the podcast as a whole. But really quickly, as I was doing this show and in the first you know, dozen, two dozen episodes, I, I quickly realized that if we talked about problems, we weren't going to have a very long life. We're going to be there in a year or two years or five years, definitely 10 or 11 like we are now. That We had to speak about solutions, to talk about solutions, and solutions that people could actually implement. And when I look at the world today, this is kind of how I see it. Remember, this show is always really marketed, always has been as one man's opinion. But it's an opinion based on a lot of observation and a lot of fact. Basically, I see it this way. According to the people in power, we are all at the edge of total destruction all the time. And only they separate us from oblivion. And if I went back in time 500 years to some civilization at the time that was large and powerful, I guarantee you the message would have been the same. The, they're coming to get us from right over those hills and only we protect you. And not just the societies that would be analogous to the United States, but every major society always does that. Of course, this is mostly just a great way to control people. Governments need enemies to protect citizens from in order to keep them obedient and allow for a steady removal of liberty over time. If you try to take liberty from people too quickly, they rebel against you. But if you don't provide them an impetus to give up liberty, they cease giving it up, and they eventually demand more, which is not good for you if you're in power. Remembering the state always has to get larger, and for the state to get larger, you have to have less liberty. The state operates like an organism, like fire. It seeks to preserve itself and reproduce itself and consume things. And as a department of government grows, no matter what problem they were instituted to solve, That problem can never be solved or there's no justification for it anymore. It has to go away and millions of jobs are at stake, etc. That's just how things work. And governments need those enemies to protect citizens from, at least metaphorically, in order to keep them obedient. If they want you obedient, you have to believe that you need them. And the only way you believe that you need the oppression of the state is to be afraid of something. And if every justification for the state especially when it's a justification for the state to get bigger, is a fear of what will happen if it doesn't. Even the most classic objection to libertarianism, roads, is a fear that without government there won't be roads. Nothing that anybody says to ever support the needs of the state comes from any place other than fear. And most of it's bullshit. That said, we do have some real problems. The fact that the people who claim to have the solutions are actually the cause of most of the problems doesn't change the fact that we have these problems. Just because many of the problems are not as bad as claimed 
doesn't mean they're not serious. Additionally, there are many problems that are actually bigger than they are claimed or totally ignored by the establishment as not being important because they don't benefit from pointing out those problems. In short, while we need to be vocal about real solutions on a large scale, what we really need to be doing mostly is taking actions on a small one on the areas that we control. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. Look, guys, herbs are an incredible way to help live a healthier life. They really are. There is a lot of snake oil in the world of herbs and supplements and things like that. Western Botanicals doesn't have any part in anything like that. They are absolutely a company that does things above board. We've worked with them now for nine years. Total number of complaints in Western Botanicals, zero. I mean, even the best companies I work with, I can come up with one or two. I have never, ever, Infinity, had somebody email me and said a problem with Western Botanicals in an order. Ever. Not at all. Zero. Amazing. Especially in that industry. They are real people that really care about you, and they give away uh, their discount membership for free to members of the MSB. So you want to make sure you take advantage of that benefit because it saves 25% on all purchases, uh, and it's just awesome. Next up today is BulkAmmo.com. Um, what good is your gun, other than maybe you can sell it, without ammunition? What can it do without ammunition? Think about it this way. Say the government gave up banning guns, but banned ammunition. What good would your gun be unless you went and got some black market illegal ammunition? And no good at all, right? I mean, a gun can't do the gun's job without ammo. We all know this intrinsically. That's why whenever we have new talk of gun legislation or something like that, the first thing that drives up off the shelves isn't the guns or even the magazines. It's the ammo itself because it's the expendable component. So you need ammo. You don't want to overpay for it. And you want to find what you're looking for. Easy, quick, fast shipping, great customer service. Go to BulkAmmo.com. Long-term sponsor of the show, I think like seven years now. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com, and they do do a discount for MSB members as well. With that, let's dig into this. Let's start out with a quote. Quote of the day today just so happened to really fit with what we're going to talk about today, solutions to problems. Arthur Ashe said this, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. This might sound very familiar to the misdistributed quote, Uh, to Teddy Roosevelt we talked about recently. And it, it's similar. It's another way of saying the same thing. But on the others, it has its own aspects that fit uniquely with today, which is why I chose it. Start where you are. So blatantly that means there that removes the possibility of an excuse. But I don't care. Start where you are. Use what you have. But I don't have. No, 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 no. What do you have? And do what you can. But I can't do everything, but you can do something. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Can you imagine the difference in the culture of our country if we simply had people with this attitude as the majority of the people in the country? Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And the, the group of people that needs the most of this injected into them, and again, as whenever I talk about a generation, it's not their fault. The, the system has made them the way they are. But our young people need this. I am so sick of excuses that I hear from our young people about how hard it is to be young today. Trust me, 
there are some things that are more challenging, but overall, you've got it better than any generation has ever had it. And so do I. Even my generation. We have it better than any generation at our state in life ever had it. There's more available today than ever. Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can, in the words of author Arthur Ashe. So let's start off with a fundamental reality that is very difficult for people who have been programmed by the system to accept. And that is the reality is the solutions to most of, if not all, of our biggest problems involves decentralization. This is why you can't vote for solutions to problems. Government doesn't do decentralization. Government, by its very nature, does centralization. Now, you don't have to be an anarchist to accept this. You can be for actual small government, if such a thing can really exist. Once, a, like, Here's my problem with the small theory of small government. Small government's great, but government of any size will become larger, and no government becomes smaller. So the belief that our government will become smaller without some sort of major collapse of its own on its own weight is just fanciful. Governments don't get smaller. They get bigger. Show me a government that got smaller. There wasn't because, like, well, it was a small town and it went bankrupt or something like that. Show me any time our government, the United States government, got smaller. Pieces got smaller, but the totality got bigger and has constantly gotten bigger from the day that we had the Articles of Confederation up till now. We have not had a year where the government actually got smaller because governments don't get smaller. And the only way a government can continue to get larger is to have more and more things to do. Okay? And that means that we need to regulate as many things as possible. We need to control as many things as possible. And we need to have as much oversight over things as possible. That's why if you look at where we're at today, the government literally wants to take over control of everything. There isn't anything they don't want control over. There's not anything they don't want to just legislate. And you have to understand, it's not just because, well, oh, the Democrats want to run your life. I mean, come on. Government wants to run your life. doesn't matter what, you, what stripe of politic you put behind it. Government, by seeking to get larger, it has to. So government doesn't do decentralization. So this, every solution that government proposes involves some sort of centralized solution, some sort of controlled solution. When you have a nation with over 300 million people in it, centralized solutions disempower the individual. The greatest innovations never come from collectives. They come from individuals. The more people doing their own thing that we can get, the more we have the potential for someone to like go, wow, look at this, really works. And for a bunch of people to go, shit, that does work. I'm going to do that too. So we have to look at decentralization for our solutions. That doesn't mean we can't talk about top-level programs, or we can't talk about top-level ways to advise people. We can't talk about changing the entire system. But it means that the resistance to that is massive, no matter how beneficial the solution would be, no matter how much proof you have. So that's why you're going to have to act on your own a lot here. The additional reality is society changes slowly, but you can change today. I mean, that's just, that's just common sense. To get Think about anything that you think needs changing in this world. Even if you and I disagree with what the change needs to be. Getting that change to happen at a societal level is incredibly difficult. But doing whatever you can is something you can start doing right now, right? Do, start where you are, 
Use what you have, do what you can. Back to our quote of the day. And I want to talk about one of the, when you say big problems, something that's going to pop up in a lot of people's mind is climate change, global warming, all of this nonsense. And it's nonsense. I'm sorry, it's nonsense. And what I'd like you to do, if you have a real hard time when I say that, if you get all mad and want to turn off the recorder, uh, I put out a video today from the 19, I think it was 1977 or 78. It was Leonard Nimoy. It was the 1970s equivalent to uh, An Inconvenient Truth. And it was about global cooling and a new ice age. And what I'd like you to do, if you, if you are skeptical when I say that this is not the problem we have to look at, but I'm going to get to the other side of it here in a second. I'm not letting the damage to our environmental environment off the hook at all. But every trick in the book being used for the whole global warming argument today, ice cores, the plight of the Inuit, the Greenland ice sheets, the, the, the causing of migrations of society, crippling of the economy, the seacoast, every single thing that you hear today that is proof that global warming is going to kill us all. I know they changed it to climate change, but they still insist that it's a warming trend that's the problem. Okay, Just because you change what you call it doesn't mean you change what you say it is. Changing it to climate change was just simply so they could say, well, there's a, there's a, there's a giant blizzard there. That's, that's from climate change, too. Global warming causes global cooling. It's just, it's just nonsense. Okay, Everything's in this video. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can watch it. Uh, watch the video if you want to. It's like 26 minutes long. And it will amaze you. And you'll understand why people that are in our 40s, 50s, and 60s are a lot more skeptical of the claims of today because we lived through the claims of yesterday. And if you research it online, what you're going to find out is that they'll, they, everything you read, especially in like the liberal piss hole that is Wikipedia today, They will say that it was like some kind of like fringe movement and it wasn't really a thing and it was just some group of crazies and everybody really knew it was global warming all along. That's not how it was. If you live through it, you know the truth. We had people coming on the news every damn night, it seemed, with climate models, with computers, showing us the ice sheets coming to get us. And all of a sudden, about 1988, 1989, we only have 10 years to act on global warming. And that's when all of us that were old enough at that point to understand what we had just been lied to about for so long went, what? Bullshit. And then, you know, 10 years later in 1999, coincidentally, we had 10 years. And then we had 10 years 10 years ago, and now we have 12 years. I guess they're leaving them. It's just ridiculous. But the problem is that the idea that our environmental problems are created by CO2 lets us off the hook way too easily. It's not that that problem's too hard to solve. It's that that problem is so myopic that it ignores the actual problems. The pollution from fossil fuels. The pollution from solid waste. These are problems we're going to talk about solving today. The erosion of our farmlands. The, the, the resulting, because of that, the resulting pollution of our rivers and our, our, our oceans. The dioxins and trioxins that come from all of the industrial processes that we do. The massive amount of, of, of death and destruction that humans cause on the planet is totally ignored because we believe that the molecule that we exhale is the, is the real problem. And it has made people myopic and pathetic in defending and protecting our environment. You do more to teach people how to compost and recycle than you would to ever help the environment by cutting CO2 emissions. 
And that's scientific. And you can actually look at actual proof that this is the truth. And the climate's going to do what the climate's going to do. And if that's what you're really concerned about today, here's the good news. Everything that I'm going to talk about doing today would be better for climate change if CO2 is the problem. But it's better for the, better for the planet even if CO2 isn't the problem. And it doesn't destroy the economy. It may radically trans, transform it, but it doesn't destroy it. Um, so let's talk about our biggest problems in some ways to fix them. And again, in my opinion, my one of my biggest concerns for our future is the soil erosion and river and ocean runoff. And that's in one part of the country. And what I would throw into this as well in many of the other parts of the country is desertification. So turning productive arable land into modern-day deserts. Now, understand, there are places that were desert before humans ever went near them. Okay? Many of them, I believe, are not deserts solely due to climate, but some of them are actually deserts due to uh, catastrophic events that occurred around the ending of the last ice age. You want to check out uh, Randall Carlson and Grant Hancock's work on this stuff if you want to know more about that. But there are places like, it's not we didn't do it. But there's massive amounts of the world today that are effectively desert because of the way that we treat them. And they don't even, some of them don't even meet the, uh, the climate-based definition of desert in having less than, it's either 10 or 12 inches of rain a year. Some of them get a little bit more than that. But when you look at the landscape and you look at what grows and you look at what lives, it's desert. And we did it with agriculture, mostly with agriculture. Some of it we did with mining and deforestation as well. And when we look at this and we realize the totality of it, let me give you just two examples of where this is a massive environmental crisis that is a threat to humanity and the world's ecosystems. One is the Mississippi River in the United States. And the massive amount of fertilizer and topsoil that goes in that river washes down that river into the Gulf of Mexico every year. There is an area that's larger than many states Every year that flares up is what's called a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And literally everything dies. And this costs just the fishing industry billions of dollars every year. But it's the entire ecology of the river and the systems that, that flow into the river itself across the entire middle of the United States on top of this. Plus what's going in there isn't, if it was just fertilizer, herbicide, and pesticide, it would be bad. But what's even worse is our lifeblood, the topsoil, goes in there too. And it doesn't have to happen. There are some major agricultural changes we can make in what we grow, how we grow it. But the simplicity of earthworks can stop this. The next is Florida and southwest and southeastern Florida and the Okeechobee and Everglades system and how that's been damaged by humanity. Um, there is a lot of sugarcane farming there, and that is a part of the problem. Most of the problem is actually residential houses that were built and drained swamps and now have all have canals in their backyards and everybody doing true green chemlon and, and all of that nutrient going into... Okeechobee, Okeechobee swelling its capacity every year, and because the Everglades are now choked off to a large degree. See, Okeechobee didn't really connect to either of the two main rivers that now take water from Okeechobee to the 
the, the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean. It actually didn't connect to either one of those rivers. Those rivers did get their headwaters from Okeechobee, but it was as the, 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 the water weeped through the uh, Everglades swampland and seeped in and eventually formed multiple rivers, including the two main rivers, which I can't off the top of my head give you right now. And the Corps of Engineers went in there because when they put all of this construction into the swamplands, like the people's houses would get flooded out if they didn't do something about it. And Okeechobee was now basically choked. It couldn't drain into this massive drain that was the Everglades Swamp. Not 100% choked off, but massively choked off from what it used to do. So they put in, and if you follow either of these rivers all the way to Lake Okeechobee, the last several miles of them are absolutely straight line and concrete. Straight line and concrete. They're canals. They, they manually connected them to drain this lake. And now because of all of these factors together, the toxicity in the rivers and the lake of nutrient swells, and it swells at the same time of year that the rains come in heavy earnest. So then the lake is too full, so they have to drain the lake. And then all of this toxic shit goes into the ocean and creates massive fish kills. Two years ago, the one that hit the Fort Myers area was beyond belief. Uh, I, having been a guy that fished there a lot of my life, I can tell you that one thing you could always go there and catch in abundance, and nobody ever even, like there was a limit and a size, but nobody really cared, was uh, sp speckled trout. Like you could just, I mean, if you couldn't feed yourself on speckled trout there, you're an idiot. You don't have fish. And when I went back this year, because of the kill the year before, the guide said there's a moratorium on them. You can't even keep them, and all the ones they're catching are 10 inches long. And there's nowhere near a lot of them. They're ones that came from elsewhere into the vacant waters. There were Goliath grouper, a fish that's been fished to near extinction and brought back to healthy levels, and you're not even allowed to take them out of the water when you catch one. You pull it up, take a picture of it, and let it go. It was a bucket list item for me. I caught one a couple of years ago, and I was so proud of the fact that that fish went back unharmed. It's probably dead today. Thousands of them washed up on shore dead. Whale sharks washed up on shore dead. There were miles of beaches that were covered in dead fish because of this And it seems hard to solve. It's not. It's not. All we have to do is restore that ecosystem, do better agricultural practices, stop using true green chem lawn. Not everybody needs a bright green lawn. You're living in Florida. Grass grows. No one needs lawn fertilizer in this area. You don't need it. Grass will be fine. Put some clover in it. You'll be good. The, the, the Mississippi River that seems so much more complicated, again, a system of earthworks that could be put in for about $80 million, even if we kept doing everything the wrong way agriculturally, would almost stop this. $80 billion sounds like a lot. It's not. It's a rounding error in our, in our government. And done over multiple years, it is, it is, it is almost not even noticeable in our, our, our solutions. But it's not going to happen. Neither of those are going to be solved anytime soon until people care enough and the crisis gets real enough for people. I think Florida got very close, and I think the next time maybe Florida will get serious about fixing their problem. Let's talk about the real pollution created by fossil fuels. Here's the good news about that. While that industry is going to do everything it can to preserve itself, it's a dying industry. And it's not dying only due to renewables. One of the things killing the, the dirtiest parts of the fossil fuel industry, which is oil and coal, is natural gas. 
one of Trump's one of Trump's problems with getting reelected is going to be a lot of coal country really believed he was going to bring the coal jobs back. Uh, I and John Pugliano told you it would never happen. It would have nothing to do with whether or not he intended to, but that coal was a dying fuel. That we just weren't going to mine, and they're closing coal plants now. In spite of loosening regulations and stuff like that, like it just doesn't make sense to put in a coal-fired plant to generate electricity when you could put in a natural gas one. The gas is cheap, it's abundant, and while it's not a completely clean fuel, it's a hell of a lot cleaner, even from CO2 emissions, than coal or oil. And we have only scratched the surface on how much gas can be extracted. So gas is, is huge. If we actually thought that global warming was an existential threat, we should be building modern, safe nuclear power facilities left and right. We're not doing it, but we could. The, the problem with fossil fuels is that they're dirty. It's not that burning them makes CO2. Burning anything creates CO2. I mean, you understand that. Burning literally anything, if you can bust something, you get CO2. Every fire makes CO2. Um, every time you go and exhale, you make CO2. Your dog breathing makes CO2. A cow breathing makes CO2. A squirrel breathing makes CO2. The good news is plants need it. Fossil fuels, if you, if you want to understand how bad coal is, go somewhere where coal's been mined for, for, for a century. And you'll find streams that are orange from sulfur oxidation. Basically, it's sulfur rust. The rocks, if you try to step in there without the right like special shoes that are designed to grab onto the rocks, you'll break your neck. It's like stepping on oil. Nothing lives in these creeks that are orange and red because oxidation means no oxygen. All the oxygen is combined with the sulfur that comes from the mines. There's stripping holes that are leaching toxins. Coal itself is incredibly dirty. You want to see how dirty coal is, look up slush dam. There's no water in most slush dams, by the way. Slush dams are all the all the coal dust-coated rock that's left after the breaking process where coal and rock are separated and coal is made into a size that it can be used. And we call the places that these slush dams exist black deserts because they're a blot on the land of acres where nothing grows. Maybe one or two little stands of pine trees will grow through there, the pioneering species. It, it leaks into our oceans. The off-gassing that comes off the actual wells is, is awful from oil. Fossil fuels are dirty fuels in and of themselves. This is why I say the concept that we need to reduce CO2 lets us off the hook. Because that means if we can capture the carbon, that we're okay. We can burn as much coal as we want as long as we can capture the carbon. What's wrong, stupid? We captured the carbon. What about the mine? What about the mountaintop removal? What about the strip mines? What about the leaching? You see what I'm saying? So the real pollution created by fossil fuels is a huge problem. The good news is we are innovating our way out of it. We need this, this shit from the right to stop on the windmills. Okay, let me explain something to you people that are freaking thick-skulled. No, it does not. it is not impossible for a windmill to, to replace the energy used to make it. Make it. it doesn't take 20 years. It doesn't mean that the windmill will be not operational before it does. A modern wind machine produces enough energy to build another wind machine in six to nine months. 
six to nine months. Your stories about the wind machines that have to be thrown away and the props have to be buried and stuff like that are for a very small percentage of wind machines that were built using uh, synthetic materials instead of metal because uh, they thought it was a better idea and it wasn't. And that's about 10% of the total wind implemented. The 90% of the wind implemented in the country has life cycles of greater than 25 years with a six to nine month return on the energy required to build one. Wind works. I know the TV and Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity told you it didn't, but it's bullshit. Wind works. Wind alone is not enough, but it works. Hydroelectric works. There can be some problems with it, but those can be mitigated. We can do more of it if people stop thinking they're helping the environment by destroying it. There are so many things we can do, and solar is going to become so stupid cheap. And by necessity, because it does use rare earth elements, etc., it is going to be designed in a way that is designed to be recyclable. Because it's going to make the most sense. Storage is going to have the same thing happen. So battery technology is going to get stupid cheap. In 10 years, the amount of solar power generated in this country is going to boggle your mind no matter how skeptical you are or you are not. It won't be 100% of what we use, but it will be so much more than anybody that's not paying attention can even conceive of right now. The beauty of the, the problem with fossil fuels is that we are going to innovate our way out of that problem. And that's why all of you people that are breathless about global warming can just freaking go take a dump and relax. Okay, you're too uptight. Pop a suppository in, take a crap, and relax. You don't have only 12 years to live. Children and bartenders to become congresswomen that are really actresses do not make climate experts. And within 50 years, we will burn almost no fossil fuels because the market is going to market. And you can relax about it. And we will not be all dead in 50 years. No one's stealing your childhood millennials or your, whatever the younger generation is called now. No one's stealing your dreams. It's okay. That one, as bad as it is, it's going to self-correct. And it already has self-corrected more than anybody wants to admit because admitting it takes away the ability to use the fear-mongering to take away liberty and freedom. And that's factual. It takes away the ability to push socialism with it. Um, let's talk about pests and diseases that threaten our crops. It would be amazing if we would stop trying to grow food that's really not good for people to eat in the first place. That would do a lot for it. I, I talked about this recently, so I don't want to go too deep into it on the solution side, but... If we weren't growing potatoes and corn and soy as our three prime and rice as our primary crops, a lot of what we would be growing really doesn't have that huge of a problem with pests and diseases and could be much more intensively managed. If you want to so, so fix this problem, what we need to do is, is bring back the diversity in our seed lines, grow more and more vegetative crops that are short duration crops so the pests have less time to damage them. A crop like a, a leafy green crop that takes somewhere between you know, 20 and 50 days to be fully harvested only has 20 to 50 days for pests to bother it. When you have crops that are 90, 120, 140-day crops, which are all the carbohydrate crops, by the way, there's a lot more time for pests to damage them. If, 
if, if you look back in history, and if you represented the diversity in seed stock that we had in 1900, and that's only, what, 120 years ago? If you represented that with a dollar bill, we have about seven cents left. That's how much has been lost. Now, the good news is a lot of it's being brought back. A lot of it already has been brought back. We're probably up to a dime by now. And a lot of it can be developed. It's not even bringing it back. It's developing new strains of seeds and plant types. We can do that. But the biggest thing that we need to do that will help with the soil erosion problem we started off with and make diseases and pests so much less of a problem is move this country where it belongs, which is to a primary consumer of meat and fat as the way that it gets its nourishment. Because if we do that and we're not plowing up billions of acres of corn and wheat and soy every year, and instead we're grazing cattle, we're grazing pigs, we're grazing lambs, we're grazing chickens that are rejuvenating and building soil, we're capturing massive amounts of carbon into the soil. We are creating grassland and savanna-based ecosystems, and it will stop erosion but cold. When there were 50 million bison running around crapping everywhere, there wasn't dead zones in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. We didn't have these problems. Occasionally some sort of catastrophic flooding might have created them, but they didn't happen as a matter of course every year. Because grassland ecosystems are stable. This is what, if you want environmentally sound policy, then what you need are stable systems. A stable system is a system that, that stays pretty much the way it is with very little to no intervention. So how stable is a wheat field? How stable is a corn field? How stable is a soybean field? How stable is a thousand acres square of dirt with nothing covering it other than what a farmer sows every year? How stable is that system? Using the definition is that it will stay pretty much the way that it is or evolve in a positive manner if no one does anything? And the answer is it's dramatically instable. It's not stable at all. In one year, it goes into complete disarray. Now nature, if the damage isn't too extensive, will begin to put a forest there or a grassland system there really, really quick. The problem is it takes an awful long time to happen because we removed the ruminants that natively wandered our systems. The bison, the elk, the deer, they're not there anymore. The deer have, were always an edge creature, but now they exist almost primarily as edge creatures. So they exist in the edge of those fields where there's woods and where there's, there's the suburbs. The buffalo are gone, and the elk we think of as being a Rocky Mountain animal because that's the only place they're left. There were elk in Pennsylvania when the white man got here. There were elk in Florida. There were elk in California. And there were elk in Washington State. There were elk up into New England. Do you understand what that means? There were elk in Texas. Do you get that? That's, the, that's what, what's left. You're talking about 800-pound animals that moved in herds, in addition to the 50 to 60 million bison that's only an estimate, probably low. And we didn't have any of these problems. And those of you that are like, well, if we eat all that, everybody's going to have cancer and heart disease. Okay, riddle me this, Batman. If that's the case, why didn't our Native Americans who lived in this country without us here for thousands of years, though specifically the Plains Native Americans that lived on the Plains, 
that did not have fruits to harvest because there weren't a lot of trees because it was grassland savanna live exclusively almost on buffalo. Yeah, they trapped beavers where there were streams and they ate deer and they ate elk, but the majority of their calories came from bison. The caloric macro profile of a buffalo that lives in the wild in the grasslands of the original uh, climate of the United States is almost identical to that of a cow that lives on grass. People say, well, buffalo are, are leaner or whatever. No, they're not. They're leaner than a cow that you fed a massive amount of corn at a CAFO. If you compare a grass-fed, grass-finished cow to a buffalo, a mature buffalo that's been on grass for a couple seasons, the big buffalo, and the Indians killed the big buffalo. There was more meat, duh. They were also the ones that felt they had to def defend the herd, and when humans approached, they went to the front of the herd. So if those people lived on grass-fed meat, and grass-fed meat and high fat from grass-fed meat causes cancer and heart disease, why didn't they have any? They basically didn't have a word for cancer. Heart disease was not a thing. When, when, when the white man first got here and they looked at the Native Americans, they called them giants. Because they looked huge to them. And incredibly fit. They weren't going to the gym. They weren't working out. The, the Native American Indian was not getting on a treadmill or pumping iron. Why did they have the health that they had? And, and today, even, there are still tribes of Inuit that live by traditional means and don't eat the Western diet. They live on seal and whale blubber. Why don't they have heart disease? Why don't they get cancer? Because it's a lie, and you've been lied to. And as long as you let this lie direct your life, you can't see the solution, because the solution is dramatically simple. A stable agricultural system would mimic a natural system. There is no natural system known. That is giant fields of one plant. There is no natural system that provides an abundance of continuously harvestable carbohydrates for humans to consume other than a very narrow brand of, band of the tropics and subtropics. In all temperate climates, that doesn't exist. Even where you have native apples in Kazakhstan, native persimmon in the United States, the carbohydrate yield is small and seasonal. The thing that's available all the time in a stable natural ecosystem is animals. We are hunter-gatherers, not farmers. We are horticultural species, I meaning we care for plants, but we live on animals. And we can build incredibly stable ecosystems based on animal systems. And instead of having wolf packs and coyote packs force the animals to move, in tight groups, we can use a paddock system. And we can destroy any concern about pests and disease in our crops because we're not going to rely on the annual production. And by the way, every civilization in history that ever relied on annual production to feed itself eventually collapsed. That's, more com that's, the, that's the universal commonality. Oh, Rome was like the United States. Not really. Not really. Some ways, sure. Other ways, not. But what Rome and the United States have in common, they lived on wheat. We live on wheat and some, a few other grains. That's a good, no matter what the government was, whether it was totalitarian or socialist or a republic or whatever, a monarchy, every single civilization that based its, its sustenance on annual production eventually collapsed. The ones that ain't collapsed, they don't look too good and too healthy right now. We can build a perennial system 
the animals self-reproduce, the grass grows back, the soil gets more fertile, the erosion is cut to nothing. We cut off what erosion there is with tree lines. If we have to irrigate some, we do, but we irrigate less. Stop believing the bullshit like, it takes so many thousands of gallons to make one pound of beef. Do you know what a cow does after it drinks? Same thing you do. It takes a piss. Where do you think that water goes? Into the ground. And then what happens? It evaporates. It's called the water cycle. And that piss provides ammonia, which grows plants. And their crap has, has moisture in it, which also gets driven off. That provides water back to the ecosystems and fertilizes the soil and sequesters carbon and grows. You see how this works? So we can eliminate most of the ecological problems that we have just by converting to a savanna-based, perennial-based system that produces the majority of calories from meat-based systems. And there's still plenty of room to grow vegetables, some grain, some for animals, some for people. It's not like all grain has to be considered poison. Some fruits, so that we're eating a moderate, very small amount of fruit spread out here and there, seasonally. But we can feed those fruits to animals. Persimmon, I mentioned that. What a great crop. Huge tree. Not these big, giant persimmons the size of your face in the store that man fabricated but real, true, Native American, native, native to America, the American continent, persimmon. Massive trees. And they hold their fruit well into winter. All the leaves are gone. They're, they, look like, they look beautiful because there's orange everywhere. They shrivel up, they dry up, they concentrate their sugars. The heavy winter winds come and they fall, and guess what? Excellent for putting fat on your cattle and getting them through winter. Almost like nature knows what it's doing. You think the buffalo and the elk ate persimmons? I know deer did because watched, I've watched deer eat a persimmon. I watched a deer eating persimmons under a tree just out of my bow range, just too far to shoot. He started leaving back across a field. So I was hunting one time. I was a kid. And a wind came, and one persimmon fell out of that tree and hit the ground. And that deer did a 180, trotted over, ate that persimmon, and left. Again, that deer was headed into winter. He needed to put some fat on. Carbohydrates are how you put fat on. We use it to put fat on chickens and cows and pigs. Why don't you think it'll work for you? Maybe you don't want that much fat, though. So we can do all of this, and that will solve the soil erosion. That will reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. It's the number one thing we could do. Again, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. Like I've said before, it's going to be really hard. A massive decline in public health. One of the things the climate deniers are blaming on climate change, which makes no sense, it just makes no sense at all, is the fact that the current generation of young people, the first generation in America where the life expectancy of the current generation is shorter than the life expectancy of the previous generation. We actually expect people that are 20 years old to live a few years less now than people that are already in their 70s. That has nothing to do with climate change. The temperature of the air changing 0.1 or 0.2 degrees up or down does not make you die younger. That is the dumbest thing somebody could say. So why? Why are people dying younger? The number one reason is obesity. The number one reason we have obesity is eating too much sugar. So the thing I just said, that's all we got to do to have a massive improvement in public health, which will reduce the cost of health care, which will reduce the number of people that are in hospitals, which will reduce the number of people that need to see doctors, 
which will reduce the overall burden and make the people that need care more able to get care. Cancer rates would go down. Heart disease would go down. Type 2 diabetes, if we get people off sugar, and it doesn't have to be keto. I know that's what I do. So I know every time I talk like this, you think I'm like preaching to you my way. No, all we have to do is get people to eat far less sugar in the form of refined carbohydrates, high fructose corn syrup, uh, grains, and fruit. That's it. And eat more of a whole diet. Even if you're eating some wheat and shit like that. I don't think you should, but hey. And you know what? A whole generation, you might have to die. Because even though you're eating better, it's not enough to lose weight. You'll die. The next generation will figure it out. Because the way you'll eat, where it won't be enough to restore your health, will be would have been okay. Not perfect, but okay had you never gotten fat and sick in the first place. So if you want to go ahead and die because you don't want to fix your problem, okay, that's all right. The next generation can take over. But if we go to a perennial-based grassland system for the majority of our agricultural production, then we're going to live off the highest quality meat and fat, small amounts of fruit, and vegetables, lots of vegetables. That's what that would result in. And, and then that problem solved, the, the erosion problem solved. Let's move on to another problem. Um, we have an expanding housing crisis. Everybody's, because it's easy to punch socialists in the balls. Everybody wants to jump on California right now for their housing crisis and say, look what you did. You've made, you've made housing so expensive with all your rules and regulations, you have a massive homeless problem. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. There's homeless people throughout this whole country. California may have more of them, and the thing they've done may have produced more of them, but everything California is doing, every other municipality in the country is doing, just not as much of it. We have jacked up the cost of housing everywhere. Right here in Texas, 20 years ago, you could buy a nice three- to four-bedroom house for about $80,000. And I mean a pretty good size, like 1,800 square feet for a three-bedroom. 1,800 square feet for a three-bedroom is a big house. You know, 1,800 feet for a five-bedroom, uh, you get some pretty small rooms. 1,800 foot in a three-bedroom? I mean, you probably have two, two dens or two dining rooms or something like that when you're that big. And your, your living space is huge. Your kitchen is big. My kid paid 170000 roughly for a 1,300-square-foot three-bedroom just a couple years ago. It's crazy. And, it's the, and it, the, those houses are the last of the entry-level houses available here. Because the government got greedy, like California here, not as greedy, but greedy, and put building restrictions out where you can't build small homes anymore. Like, I think most, most places to get a permit to build a new home, minimum 1,800 square feet. Some are 2,200 square feet. Why? They want to protect their tax base. Why? Because the state seeks to survive, and the state seeks to grow. So the only way the state can seek to survive and grow is more regulation and more control. See, anybody that argues against that, I wonder what planet you get your bullshit from. Because everything you look at proves that is true, including the housing problem. Solution to the housing problem, number one, we need to get rid of tremendous amounts of government red tape, codes, restrictions. And some are federal, but most of them are local. If somebody wants to build an earth ship, they should be able to build an earth ship anywhere they want to. Now, if the HOA says they can't, that's a private government. I think if you live in an HOA, you're an idiot. You're a person that says, I don't have enough government in my life, I want more. But you have a right to create an HOA. 
Especially if you don't force it on somebody that doesn't want to be part of it. You create a new development, you want to put an HQ, go ahead. But if I want to live in an Earthship, I should be able to build an Earthship. If I want to live on solar power, I should be able to live on solar power. If I don't want to be connected to the grid, I shouldn't have to be connected to the grid. If I want to build a house that's 400 square feet, I should be able to build a house that's 400 square feet. If I own an acre and I have an 1,800 square foot house, and I want to put in two 400 foot square, square foot tiny houses on my acre and rent them to somebody, I should be able to do that. The fact that some of you will say, well, you know, blah, 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 you've got to protect your housing values or whatever bullshit excuse to, to protect the policies that prevent this, and then have the audacity to say the stupid words of, this is the freest nation in the world. I mean, are you actually retarded? Has the government school system actually damaged your brain to where you're that stupid that you think those two things go together? I mean, you have to be an idiot to say that we are free when a man that owns an acre can't build a small house on his acre in addition to the one he already has. That is not freedom. That is literal tyranny, and it makes this problem worse. But if we take to the concept of giving people freedom, who knows what people will come up with housing solutions. On top of it, I'm going to go back to the agricultural solution. We're going to have a song today. At the end of the show, it talks to the plight of the American farmers. The biggest reason American farmers have a plight today is because they have to own so much land to survive. That means they have to make payments on the land. They have to make payments on equipment. They have to make payments on seed. And their farms won't feed them. A farm won't feed a farmer. You can't live on corn or soybean. So they might make enough money to buy food. But what I mean is the farm doesn't feed the farmer. In America, historically... Until we got into modern agriculture the way that we do it today. When somebody established a farm, whether it was a 40-acre homestead or even a couple hundred acres, the first thing they did was build the farm to feed the farmer and the farmer's family. And once the farmer and the farmer's family were fed, we sold the surplus. Today, farming is McDonald's. okay? And I don't mean the connection between big food and farm, far, farming. That's not what I mean. This is what I mean. Ray Kroc spoke at a college graduation one time. And there was a small group of the students who were like some special group of students that got to come hang out with him. Ray Kroc is the founder of McDonald's, for those that live under a rock and ain't been around long enough to know. So they took them out. He took, decided, let's go get a beer. So he took this group of you know high-level high graduates or some club or some shit, whatever it was. He took them out to get a beer, and they all got their beers, and they all sat down. And he said, I want to give you all an education in how to make money. What business do you think I'm in? And they all, they all kind of looked at each other like, is this guy serious? He's founder of McDonald's, you know? And so nobody wanted to say And finally one of them spoke up and said, come on, Mr. Kroc, there's not a single person here that doesn't know you're in the hamburger business. And he said, that's what I thought you'd say. That's what I thought you'd say. I'm not in the hamburger business. Hamburgers are simply how I pay for real estate. I'm in the real estate business. And if you think about it, the only organization in the world that has more in real estate holding value than McDonald's is the Catholic Church. No other organization in the world owns more real estate than McDonald's. They use hamburgers to pay for real estate. Think about where McDonald's are located. Go to Manhattan, most expensive real estate market in the United States. Every other corner there's a McDonald's. Burgers and fries pay for the real estate. That's what farming's become. It's become a way to control 
large blocks of real estate, and the farming scam fed by you know giant mechanized equipment, chemicals and fertilizers and debt allows you to play the monopoly game on the land. And the exit strategy is sell the land. It's getting harder to do, but that's the exit strategy. And so if you're if you're if you if the farmer sees things that way, why do they care if the soil erodes as long as they can sell it to somebody else who's going to dump chemicals on it? Do you see where I'm where I'm coming? All of this is linked. So to fix the and why does that play to the housing crisis though? What if it was once again possible to make a living on 40 acres as a farmer? How much pork and beef and chicken do you think a person can produce on 40 acres? Along with tree-lined paddock systems and a market vegetative garden. How much? A lot. Plenty to feed the farmer, plenty to have surplus. It's a whole new industry at a time when industry's going away, and it's not a mechanizable industry. You can mechanize corn. You can automate corn. You can automate cows in a CAFO, I guess. But a rotational ecosystem requires someone there to guide it. Besides, if you own the land, whether you use automation or not, it's still your profit. So the housing system has so many ways that we can approach this. Small houses, tiny houses, off-grid, getting people out of the way so that we can figure out what can be done. And restoring the concept of actually having your land feed you and then provide an income. Um, next up, we have a huge problem with human and solid waste. This problem is so simple to solve, it's almost embarrassing that we have it. So solid waste alone, like how much of our solid waste comes from the, the current system that we have of everything being disposable and our current food system of being everything being packaged? How much less solid waste would there be if people bought steak and vegetables versus boxes of crackers and cereal? I mean, just, just think about that alone. Additionally, almost everything that we put in a landfill could be recycled. Almost everything. So the solution to that is to simply recycle and develop systems to do it. Reduction of food waste would be huge. A lot of what goes in the garbage is food. Well, we need fertility to grow plants, so almost all food waste can be fed to black soldier flies. So that is a system in itself that could solve problems. Black soldier flies can be fed to chickens and fish, which humans eat. Now we have a closed loop on that waste system. Human waste can be composted. Human waste can be very effectively and very safely composted. We do not need to be dumping human waste into water systems that we then need to purify to drink the water that our own shit went into. The, 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 the human waste and solid waste problem is dramatically easy to solve if there was a, a will to do so. But we're back to money. What do you think the value of the solid waste industry is? You want to deal with people that are like the mafia? Go disrupt the solid waste removal industry. Go disrupt the companies that have the trucks that come get your garbage and take it away. Go see how those guys play. 
Those are people that will literally break legs to protect what they have. And it's billions of dollars. Next is automation. Automation is the biggest threat to employment that we have. The only reason it hasn't gone faster is industry knows they have to be careful with it. If they put enough people out of work, there's nobody there to buy the shit that the robots are building. Um, but this is not some fantasy that's been dreamed up by people. This isn't just like you heard when you were kids and it never happened. Like, if you look at what's being done with automation, um, computer algorithms, self-learning algorithms, in general, computer code, along with robotics, there is an, there's almost nothing that humans do that can't already be done by machines. And eventually, it has to propagate itself outward. And the reason it has to propagate is if I'm running a business and I can be more efficient, spend less money, and have a better quality through technology, even though that means that I have to let employees go, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it every time, all the time, because if I don't, my competitor will, and my competitor will be selling a superior product for less money. That doesn't mean that everything that people want will go to automation. And, and so this is like understanding how we can... We're not going to solve this this problem. This problem, in many ways, is a solution. Solutions create their own growing pains, though. So one of the, the truisms here is that there will never be nothing for people to do until we have no problems or unfulfilled desires. As long as people want something um, that they that they don't have otherwise... As long as people um, have things that they feel like are not proper or not right or are irritating or uncomfortable, anytime, anything that you can approach as a problem, uh, as long as there's things that people want beyond the stuff they can just pick up off of a shelf and have as far as entertainment or education or anything like that, there will be things for people to do to solve those issues. So we are not going to reach a point where there's nothing for anybody to do. The problem is there's an awful lot of people who make their living today doing things that we don't need them to do anymore. And if you go back to just like look at the agricultural market, one of the biggest um, things we do as far as expenditures that aren't necessary is multi-billion dollars worth of farm equipment. That I don't, I'm not saying we don't need any of it, but we don't need as much of it as we have because we shouldn't be growing as much corn, wheat, and soy as we are. So that's one of the resistance points there. But think of how many other industries that's true about. Think about this. If we actually – everybody says they want you to be healthy. Government wants you to be healthy. The doctor wants you to be healthy. The drug company wants you to be healthy. Congress wants you to – everybody says they want you to be healthy. What would happen to our economy if nothing happened but – Half of the sick people in our country today were made well within the next two weeks. I'm going to tell you what would happen. Our economy would crash. Our economy would crash. Because, well, wait a minute. I build this machine that hospitals buy for $10 million. And so we sell 50 of them a year. And I employ all these people with that money. But now, like, there's enough of them, and no one wants another one? Now you'll say, well, Jack, you just said, what if there's a problem? And, well, yeah, maybe I can come up with the next great one. 
It's even better. But how many of them are needed? If half the people that were sick aren't sick anymore. That's how automation is. There's so many people that what they do, they hate. I, I can tell you right now, I have almost every member of my family who has a job hates it. They hate their job. They don't want their job. They don't like their job. They're miserable as human beings because of their job. So why do they keep their job? Roof overhead, food on the table, working for retirement that hopefully they won't be too sick to enjoy. That's why. See, th this is the fundamental reality here. We will always have things for people to do because people don't hate work. People hate jobs. Not work. People hate jobs. Don't believe me? What do most people do with their free time? Most people do some form of work with their free time. From the suburbanite that cuts the grass to the hobbyist who builds cabinets in his, his little wood shop in his garage. People go out and they, they, you know, they go out four-wheeling. Well, that's not work. Well, isn't it driving? Are there people whose entire job is to drive? People go hunting. Isn't that a form of work? People go fishing. Are there people that make a living fishing? Right? People, the things people do is largely, there's people, their entire life is dedicated to lifting weights or working out in a gym. It's work. That's why I call it working out. And they enjoy it. How many people own gardens? Gardens are lots of work. How many people, you know, do home improvement jobs all in their house all the time and they wish they had more time to do it? How many people retire and say, boy, I'm glad to be done with my work, and then they spend almost as many hours a week working at their house as they did when they had a job, and somehow their house survived, somehow their house existed, somehow it didn't fall apart. I even I remember one gentleman very, very clearly. He was talking about his dad. I mean, this is going back 20 years now. He worked with me at Lockheed. And his name was Kurt. And I remember him telling me his dad had retired. And his dad had been retired about a year. And his dad told him, I don't know how. I ever took care of this house and the yard when I had a job. Because all it feels like I do now is work. Well, the reality was a lot of things just didn't happen. And yet they didn't need to because he worked the job for 40 years. He worked 40 years, this man. Same place. He's one of those guys, the gold watch type guy. And then a lot of it that did need to be done, he just got it done a lot quicker because he was in a hurry because he had to. But left to himself, hey, I got to take care of this, but I got all day to do it. So what used to take him an hour was now taking him four hours. He was working when he wanted to, how he wanted to, as he wanted to. But it was just amazing that he occupied the time of his whole day. But have you ever, have you ever had plans to do work? Have you ever had plans to do work and then the weather ruined it? Like, you were going to work outside this weekend, and you were looking forward to it. And then it, it just poured rain or something. something. Whatever you were going to do, it's just not possible. Cold front moved in, it's five below zero outside. Whatever it is, you just you, you can't do it. And you think to yourself, well, you know, yeah, maybe it wasn't meant to be. And you're just going to hang out in the house? Don't you find yourself thinking, i got to find something to do? Because people like work. They just hate jobs. 
So we we are moving toward a place where if we actually accept the way things are going and we simplify our lives and we're not living in an economy that's 100% based on shit and stuff and garbage where people will be able to... You're going to go back to what we started as in this country. In this country, in the very beginning of our foundings, There were jobs, like a person that worked at a factory or whatever. But 90% of the people in this country were some level of entrepreneur. A lot of them were farmers, but even farmers, like they were growing corn or whatever. They planted it. You didn't have to do a lot while it was growing. They did other things. You know, maybe it was a guy that was pretty good with his hands. He fixed wagon wheels or he went and did odd jobs or, you know, he he uh, took stuff from one place to another with a horse and buggy or whatever, acted as a shipper. Like people just figured out things that they could do. Now, at the time, a lot of that was because I got to do something. But we're moving into a world where if the government will get out of the way, things are going to become dramatically affordable. Like I said, right now, steak is very expensive. But if you move into a world where it's the primary thing that we produce in America, and, and, and pasture poultry, pasture poultry, it's all expensive. It could be very, very affordable, and the people producing it could still make plenty of money to provide for themselves. You know, I'll, I'll look at it like our, our full-time farmer on the expert council, Darby Simpson. What makes Darby's farming model truly unique to me isn't that he produces pastured pork, poultry, and beef. It's that if Darby could feed his family with nothing but production from his farm. It might get a little boring after a while. He might want some variety or whatever. But he doesn't. there's no reason for Darby to ever buy a piece of meat. Unless he wants some lamb and he doesn't feel like raising them. Or something like that. You know, if he wants some venison and he doesn't feel like hunting. We, and think about the fact that right, right now it's difficult to get into most businesses. The solution is simply to allow people to work in small businesses however they want with any customer they want and stop telling them how to do business stop telling a person who has one person that works for them that they have to treat that person the same as an as a company that has 500 people working for them there, there shouldn't even be any oversight whatsoever if i have one or two people working for me there should be none i don't think there should be any if i have a thousand people working for me but even if we're going to have that people that have a couple dozen people working for me, you should have nothing to say about that whether it's contract or employment or benefits or that's none of your business and we're moving to a world where there's not going to be a lot of and a lot of these people they're not going to the job they hate they're going to be really unhappy when it doesn't exist anymore because why would i pay an employee to do it and they keep they keep trying to soft sell it Well, yeah, we know we're, we're going to automate the fast food restaurants, but we'll still have our employees working there because someone will have to manage the store. It'll be, make the employee's job easier. That's going to make the employee's job stocking a vending machine. That's what it's going to make the employee's job. You'll have two people able to run a, a, an entire food store. Why do you need anybody else? You don't need somebody to put the fries in the oil and watch them until they're ready to come out and pick them up and then dump them anymore. You don't think we can do that with a robot? Have you ever tried to run a business? Don't you know that hiring people is the hardest thing you'll ever do? Most of your problems are going to come from the people you employ. The robot doesn't complain. The robot doesn't go on strike. The computer algorithm doesn't go on strike. This is coming. 
And in and of itself, it's not a problem. It's all the problems it's going to create. And what we need is complete and total freedom, decentralization, and autonomy for people so that they can figure out what to do with themselves. And if you think it's not coming, I'm sorry, it is. Lastly, let's talk about the biggest problem there is today. The entire global economy is based on debt. The entire global economy is a Ponzi scheme. People think cryptocurrency is a Ponzi scheme? Let's see, we know all the rules. We know how many units there are. We know what it takes to get a unit out. The system is, is run by thousands and millions of computers, and everybody knows the rules, and there's no central authority. That's not a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is, I'll loan you money, and you borrow money from them, and I'll loan them money. And all of these loans are money that doesn't exist, but then we'll say it exists because we'll lend it into existence. That's the global economy. I just, I know your brain just, like if you have not had a good lesson on modern money mechanics, your brain just went, stop it. That's stupid. That's not how it works. Yes, it is. There literally is no money. Every dollar, every yen, every euro, every pound, every rupee, every single currency in the civilization today is based on debt, and without debt it cannot exist. If everybody paid off all the debt, there would be no money. Now your brain's like, no, shut this guy off. Stop it. Stop it. This can't be. It is. It's how it works. You can go read the Federal Reserve's own own paperwork, and they tell you that's how it works. They're not. They don't hide it. It's not a conspiracy. When you, to make it personal, when you buy a house, and you buy a house for two hundred thousand dollars, let's say you have to borrow two hundred thousand to buy the house, whatever you put down or whatever aside, you think the bank gives you two hundred thousand dollars that it has. So it takes it has deposits. It holds a reserve of deposits. And it gives you $200,000 that, you know, maybe it's my money I put in the bank. I deposited $200,000 and uh, $300,000, and they, they loaned you $200,000 of my $300,000. You think that's how it works? It's not how it works. They don't have the $200,000 to loan you until you borrow it. They actually never have it. When you borrow it, your promise to pay it back creates new money. And this whole thing's falling apart now. This whole thing is falling apart. Because we're getting to a point where it's like using one credit card to pay off another credit card. And if certain countries fail, the whole thing starts unraveling. And it's not going to be like patriots to come and collapse. It's not going to melt down overnight. It's not going to turn into Red Dawn. But what has to happen eventually is there has to be a reckoning of this. See, back in the days of like the pharaohs and the emperors and stuff, what they would do is every once in a while, the emperor would just say, all debts are considered paid. I know that hurts your brain too, but that's what they would do. Like the pharaoh would come out and say, all debts are paid. Now, you might think, well, how would they do that? Well, they had supreme power. Because this included, like, if you owed me money, your debt was paid. I didn't get the money. But inevitably... The people that were money lenders owed money to the government. So if I owe the government, let's just put a modern number on it, a million dollars, and people owe me half a million dollars, and the government cancels all debts, 
Am I not ahead? I was owed a half a million, but I owed a million. I'm a half a million dollars ahead. So that's how that worked. And there was different versions of it in different societies, but it was it was actually a fairly common thing in monarchies and empires. That an emperor, a pharaoh, a king would just declare, and if, if not the private debt, at least the public debt was considered paid. As long as there was enough gold in the, in the treasury to fund the nation, because the government knew the first thing that would happen is that everybody would start borrowing money again. Shit, I don't have to pay it back. Damn. I can expand. I can grow. I can hire people. I can put in another, you know, blast furnace in my, my blacksmith shop or whatever. And they knew it would rejuvenate the economy. How do you do that today? But all the money is debt. There is no real reserve anymore. You have to rebase the currency. You have to basically create a new currency. That's where the conspiracy is going to be the Amero or the one world currency. You know, everybody's talked about the Amero in a long time. You know, everybody stopped claiming that, that there was a scam, that they were going to make Canada and Mexico and the United States one country. That, that, that the Tin Hatters that, that ran on about that, just, just they were so sure, and they're just gone, right? But I guess they're going to have the world, though, now or something, right? Um, the reality is the solution to the modern economics program is communities that are decentralized trading with each other. That's the whole thing. Because then it doesn't matter if they're trading dollars, Bitcoin, or Bitcoin Cash, or local currency, doesn't matter. If individual communities start to see value in each other again and do business with each other, all money is is a symbol for energy and the underlying value of the commodity being traded. Money does not derive its value because the government says it has value. Money does not derive its value because the pictures on the paper are a certain way. Money doesn't derive its value because it's gold that was dug out of a hole in the ground and refined. Money does not derive its value out of anything that most people think it does. Money derives its value from the economy within its, which in it circulates. And humans have just created money out of anything, anytime they've needed money to solve the problem of being able to exchange goods and services without direct barter. We've created currencies, currencies have risen and fallen, and humanity has gone on just fine. This actually isn't that big of a problem, except that they've used it to control the whole world. So the global system itself is in danger of, of like massive collapses all over the place as it has to be reset. The solution for you is developing your own economy. Because no matter what's being exchanged, if you do something of value for your neighbor... They'll give you something of value in return. And the people that adapt to this now before it comes to a head are going to be ahead of everybody else. I know it sounds too simple, but it's the truth. The reality is we can solve almost every problem. I mean, the, the global economic problem is easy. I'm not even going to explain it because it'll take too long and no one will believe me. But if, if you were, if I was actually emperor of the world, I could solve a lot of these problems pretty, pretty quickly, right? Um, it wouldn't be that they would be easy, but it would be simple. There would be growing pains, there would be uh, resistance, whatever, but if you actually had the will to get the systems implemented, they're not that hard to fix. 
But if you don't think cryptocurrency is going to be around, you don't understand what cryptocurrency does. I was with this guy, Ed Wallace. He's a guy who talks about cars. is his main thing. He has a show called Wheels. He also has a really interesting segment called The Backside of History. I wish he'd turn that into a podcast because it is some of the most phenomenal work that anybody's ever done on historical events. It's amazing. And Ed was the guy that always saw the future so well until he got old and became the kind of person that can't. Back in the early 90s, when the Internet first came up, he taught himself to program. He was not a programmer by nature. He taught himself to program. He built the first ever software that would let car companies sell cars online, where you could change the color, change the options, all the shit you do today. Every single manufacturer told him to go screw. He didn't know what he was talking about. Nobody would ever buy a car online. But he knew. When the Kias first came out, and they had cardboard door panels, This guy, I remember him, because I've listened to this guy for decades now. He said, don't underestimate this company. It's a Korean company. They're making whatever they can for their first cars to build a dealer network. Kia is going to build great cars. Now we have the Genesis, which comes from Kia. that competes with the Mercedes. I mean, doesn't that kind of boggle your mind that a company that started out about 25 years ago using cardboard door panels is competing with Mercedes and, and BMW and Lexus today? And he knew that. But today he's convinced that there'll never be self-driving vehicles. And somebody asked him about cryptocurrency, he crapped all over it. I would have just preferred, he said, I don't know about cryptocurrency. I don't have, I don't have an informed opinion, so I'm not going to give you my opinion. He said he talked like he knew what he was talking about. He had no idea what he was talking about. So why would anybody ever use it? How about total supply line payments, which is perfect for all these little industries where one person in a chain makes a payment and everybody connected in that chain is instantly paid and the government can't do anything about it. Gee, why would somebody want that? That's crazy talk. I mean, if you told somebody in 1920 who would write a letter with a question to the Sears company. I saw this item in your catalog on page 76. I was wondering if you could tell me if it does this thing, that thing, and the other thing, and if not, what else would I need? And mailed it and waited for weeks. And then the letter came back and it said, Dear Mr. So-and-so, yes, this item does exactly what you need it to do. Thank you for your inquiry. Please know that you can order from us at any time. And then would fill out a form and order the item. And then two weeks later, three weeks later, it would show up that, hey, one day, check this. You're going to be able to look at that item, get instant feedback from customer service. Like faster than you can find out how your corn's doing by walking out in the field and looking at it. And since you can't always trust the company to be honest with you, you're going to be able to see what hundreds of people think about that item. Without spending any dollars using a bank account only, you're going to be able to click a button. And in 24 hours or less, that item will be on your sh uh, in your hands. And if it doesn't do what it was supposed to, you'll be able to put a sticker on it, send it back, and they'll give you your money back. They would have thought you were a complete idiot. Isn't that Amazon Prime? This is, this is the new economy, but... Now we need to go to the point where we are, again, exchanging value with people we know. Cryptocurrency is the best thing in the world for that because it enables collaboration with something called simple ledger protocol. 
People are talking about Bitcoin. They don't even know. Like Bitcoin is like, like the beta of cryptocurrency. The first shot at it. They have no idea what it can do today. None. And yet they talk crap about it. But you know what's going to happen? Eventually they'll be like, oh, I, I always knew. I always knew. I was telling people to be like, yeah, huh, sure, yeah. yeah it, it's not for making money. It, it's for spending money. It's a, it's a means of payment. That's what it is. That's what it always was. Yeah. Bullshit. The, the reality is we can solve almost every problem, but most people are not ready to do so yet. We can fix the agricultural system. We can fix the pollution. We can fix the energy system. Most of it involves a centralized reduction in control and some centralized direction, but then an autonomy and freedom of the people actually doing it. And that is like, that is, I, I know that a lot of you have a problem with the term anarchy. And that's not anarchy. But I guarantee you, the people that run our government, they would call it anarchy. They would call it, the, the ability of an individual to act on his own so long as he doesn't harm anybody else, to your government is a terrifying prospect. Including if that person is a farmer that says, I don't want to grow corn anymore. I don't want to grow wheat anymore. I don't want to go grow soy anymore. I want to grow cattle. You think, well, there's people that grow cattle all the time. Yeah, but they're not the people that are on the subsidies for growing corn and soy and, and whatever. I mean, what if Farmer John does that and Farmer Pete says, hey, that looks pretty good. I'd rather do that. He starts doing it too. And all of a sudden there's a whole NCRS office being shut down because they are not needed anymore. Well, they work with people that do livestock checks. Sure they do. But once those systems are put in place, there's not a lot to be done anymore. Certainly we don't need as many people doing that job anymore. This is reality. They don't want these solutions. These solutions result in a complete and total transformation of the system by which humans are controlled, with a massive reduction in the control of human beings. They want, I'm telling you, the people in government today, they want everything to require a permit or a license. They want everything controlled. And it's not about taking over the world. They actually think it's necessary. Everything they look at, look at vapes, the vaping industry. We've got to ban it. At least we got to ban the sugar stuff. I mean, there's some virtue signaling in that. But really, you're concerned about this, really. We live in a nation where over half the adult population either has or is in danger of having type 2 diabetes from a substance that we you, you take our money from us in the form of taxes and you subsidize high fructose corn syrup. Number one reason for it, right there. But you're worried about a half dozen people that died from vaping black market items that only exist because you made THC illegal for people to have in the first place, so they went to the black market. And you think expanding the black market will fix the problem that's created by the black market that you created with your regulations. And they will answer you yes. They believe it. They believe it. They are not, they're not like, oh, well, shit, oh, that makes sense. They're like, no, of course it will. Well, it won't fix it all, but it'll make it better. Like, what planet do you get your bullshit from? That's why I feel like asking, like, ten times a day, somebody will say something like, what planet do you get your bullshit from? It can't be Earth. Because Earth is, you know, we, we can see Earth. We know pretty much the rules here. If you're using logic and Earth-based bullshit, your bullshit can never be that bad. But it is. 
Did you get your bullshit from Neptune or Pluto or freaking, I don't know, Vulcan or what? They're logical there. This is not hard. But your only choice? Fix the problem in your own life. Produce some of your own food. Manage your own piece of land. Go to the place geographically where there's the least amount of control over you based on the things that you wish to do. Take care of yourself. Eat healthy. Stop listening to the government's advice on nutrition. Again, like I said yesterday, if I made a list of ten things the government says are true, most of you would say at least eight of them are not true. You can't trust the government. But you'd pick one or two. Well, they're, they're telling us the truth about that. Everybody knows that. So why would you think that? The, the, the entity that lies to you about everything else is telling you the truth about this thing that you want to believe is true. Stop believing the lies. Make educated decisions. And remember, to learn requires that you accept that you are ignorant. We need to stop making ignorant a bad word. Stupid is bad. It sucks to be stupid. You can't fix, in the words of Ron White, you can't fix stupid. But we are all vastly ignorant. As much as I know, as smart as I am, I am vastly ignorant. I like to use things that are real. So in front of me, I have these beautiful fish tanks. I have a beautiful one I just set up with tiger barbs and grommies because that's like where I started. I planted it. This thing's off to an amazing start. I know so much about how to run that tank. And even though I've been doing this 20 years, I have learned so much this last two years. So this tank will be better than any tank I've ever done before. Because I put so much more thought into it because I learned so many things in the last two years. I'm still vastly ignorant about freshwater planted uh, tanks. Because there's so much to learn. That's why I love it. There's something to learn new every day. But if you give me a saltwater system to set up, I'm going to kill everything in it. I know nothing. So even something I know about, I have ignorance within it. And we are vastly ignorant as a species. We're vastly educated, too. But you have to start making decisions from the premise of everything that I've been told not necessarily is but could be wrong. And you can't go to the other side. I've seen some people, some good friends lately, go off the deep end of the conspiracy theory. And when you tell them that's not true, they say, you're just one of them. Either help or get out of the way. Help you do what? Spout nonsense? And then you give them conclusive proof that they're wrong. And they say it doesn't matter. Well, I'm wrong about that, but it doesn't matter. No, it kind of does, since you were basing everything on this thing that's not true, that I just demonstrated for you is not true. But no, they want to go off the crazy. So you can't go too far with questioning everything you know. And you have to put logic and reason behind it. But when somebody tells you something like, well, if you eat a lot of fat, you're going to die from heart disease. Everybody knows. Everybody knows how. Who told you that? Your teacher? Your third grade teacher was an expert in biology and chemistry and nutrition? Really? The people that advised her were, really? You really believe that? So I put out a thing today on one of my YouTube videos on, on health and nutrition, and I said, hey, you want to make that case? And I'll put it out now. I put it out to, you know, 40,000 subscribers to YouTube, but I get 1,000 views to a video after about a week. So about 1,000 people actually watch my videos. Um, 
I get 200,000 people a day listening to this. So here's my challenge for you. The first person that can bring me a study that will conclusively show that elevated consumption of healthy animal and plant fats, i.e. like avocado, coconut, grass-fed beef, pastured poultry, those fats, elevated consumption of those fats in absence of high amounts of carbohydrate contribute to heart disease, I will give you $100 of my own money, and I will, I will take a picture of it. I will send you a, a, a Benjamin, an actual bill, if that's what you want, cryptocurrency, whatever, but I'll take a picture of me doing it, and I'll put up a giant post that says, Jack was wrong, so-and-so proved it. I have to send him $100 now. Now, if everybody knows this is true, if everybody knows it, if it's absolutely true, and it's complete, everybody knows We've known this for decades. The AMA says it. The American Heart Association says it. Everybody, my doctors, everybody knows it's true. Well, there has to be one study somewhere with a solid methodology that actually tested it scientifically and proved that it was true. It has to be one. Don't go look into the, the Ansel Keys seven countries study. Not only did he data rake a whole bunch of countries out of the study, but in the study, if you read it, it says the correlation with heart disease is linked to high consumption of dietary fat and carbohydrates. Right in the study that blames fat, it says it's both inside the study if you actually read it. So that's not going to help you. Go find a place where people were fed a high-fat, natural-fat diet. No soy, none of that shit. No peanut oil, none of that. The stuff we eat on a ketogenic diet. Go find me a place where they fed them that, And even over, let's say, a year, they were able to show an elevation in bad cholesterol, triglycerides, and stuff like that. Go ahead, show me. hundred bucks. 200,000 people right now. One of you. Go ahead. Do it. My hundred bucks is safe. Very safe. And when nothing happens, and a week from now, when it's still <whistles> crickets, when somebody's fumbled around and sent me some study that's absolutely not what I said, Well, these people ate lots of carbohydrates, so that doesn't count. When you can't do it, people will still say, but everybody knows it's true. See, when you start hearing everybody knows, that's usually the genesis of your problems. If you think about everything we talked about today, how to farm and the soil erosion and everything, well, everybody knows you have to do, right? There's your problem. The pollution created by fossil fuels, well, everybody knows it's CO2, That's why you have red rivers and streams. That's why you have giant gaping holes in the ground. That's why we've removed the roofs, the tops of mountains, because it's the CO2 that's the problem, because everybody knows. Pests and disease threatening our crops. Well, everybody knows that we have to feed people on the very crops that are most susceptible to pests and disease. Everybody knows that. Can't live without wheat and corn. We'll die. Everybody knows that. See, there's your problem. Public health. Well, everybody knows that you should follow the food pyramid. There's your problem. Everybody knows something that's not true. Our, our housing crisis. Everybody knows that the government needs to help us protect property values. There's your problem. Garbage, solid waste, sewage. Everybody knows the only way to deal with it is dig a hole and bury it in the ground. There's your problem. Everybody knows something that's not true. Automation. Everybody knows that's not really going to happen. They've been saying that for years. There's your problem. It's happening right in front of us, and we're in denial. 
because everybody knows something's not true. The government creates money. Everybody knows that. Yeah, but it's not true. The banks create money through lending it. There's your problem. Everybody knows something that's not true. Every major problem in the world today is primarily there because everybody knows something that's not true. And none of it's conspiracy. None of it's hard to figure out. None of it's flat earth bullshit. It's all blatant and obvious. I mean, Bill Mollison said that. Something to the, I'm paraphrasing Bill Mollison, but he said, the problems of the world are increasingly complex. The solutions are embarrassingly simple. Now remember, simple and easy aren't the same thing. This is Simple means this is what to do to fix the problem. Easy means it's really easy to do that. Our solutions are simple. But your solutions, stop believing the bullshit that comes from Planet Melnac and start verifying things for yourself. And be very careful. My last piece of advice before we close up today. Be very careful about believing something you want to believe. It is the most dangerous form of misinformation known to man. That's why the government's so good at providing it to you. Everybody wants to believe that that beautiful amber waves of grain in that wheat field that they put into that pretty song is nutritious and beneficial and good for you. But because you want something to be true doesn't mean that it is. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support this show is do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Just go there whenever you're going to buy anything online. I got a product for you today. If you're not a fisherman, you probably don't need it. It's a pair of pliers, but it's really a pair of fishing pliers. They're made out of aluminum, except for a few key parts that need to not be aluminum. Most of those are tungsten. That means it doesn't rust or corrode. And if you're going to fish and be in water, especially salt water, that's kind of important. It's got a lot of really great features. They're made by a company called Ensport, E-N-T-S-P-O-R-T, one word, Ensport, saltwater fishing pliers. Um, there's one weakness on them. They're like a $17 tool, and they come with a carabiner that attaches to the scabbard that sits on your belt if you're using them that way when you're fishing. And they have kind of this tether that's like a, like a dog leash, kind of, a, kind of like an old phone cord, except it doesn't get tangled like one. And they're attached with a carabiner, and a split ring. Well, the carabiner goes right to the pliers. And the problem is that carabiner is so cheap and so weak of a spring, I've had it come loose. And that's like the one legitimate complaint in the reviews on these pliers. So in the link, I've got a set of carabiners I should really make is their own thing. They're not like a repelling carabiner. See, here's the thing. When I saw that, it's like, well, I need to fix it. first thing I was going to do is take a, uh, a screw-on chain link You know, the ones that look like a chain link and they screw together and just use one of those. My problem with that is that they're stainless steel, so eventually they will rust. And then when you want to take it off, you can't. Then I looked at really good quality carabiners that were made out of like aluminum and stuff like that. And they're like $20. I'm not buying a $20 carabiner to snap on a $17 tool. This is not something I got from a snap-on truck. So I found these ones. They're... Uh, About $1.50 a piece for a four-pack, $5.99 for four of them. They've got a, a secondary little screw thing that locks the carabiner shut. It's 100% aluminum alloy, so it won't rust or corrode, so you won't ever not be able to get it off without tools. Put a little bit of grease on it, a little bit of real grease on it. I've also linked to my brand of real grease I use. When I say real grease, I mean like fishing real grease. Never had a problem with it. And these little carabiners are so slick, I should probably make them an item of the day of their own. 
Well, you want to check these pliers out if you're a fisherman. They'll be the last pair you'll probably ever buy. I have a pair of three years old now, and they're kind of like they're like aluminum, but one side's blue and one side's silver. Mine look like they're almost all silver. I've had them so long, all the blue that's uh, electrocoded or whatever to the, the blue side is worn down on them to where that side's silver, too, and they still work flawlessly. Uh, they've got l great little features for a lot of other things, like working with lures and stuff. They've got, for instance, a little tooth at the end, and that's for, like, opening a split ring. Not like a big one on your keys that's easy, but like a little one that's on a lure where you have to rig stuff up. And some other really great features. You check them out. Uh, I know not everybody here fishes, but if you do and you want a really good pair of pliers, long nose pliers for hooks, taking hooks out of fish, uh, maintenance, uh, working with rigging and stuff, there's nothing better for $17. Bucks. There might be something better for $50, bucks, but I'm not spending $50 bucks on a pair of fishing pliers. I'm just not doing it. Anyway, check them out. End Sport Saltwater Fishing Pliers. Remember, whether you need them or anything else, as long as you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help us no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day as we're in John Cougar week. If I was going to skip out on one of John Adams' selections for this week, uh, John Adams, for those who are new to the show, does my musical selection programming for me, uh, it would have been this one. This is a song I really didn't know very well, and I'm not in love with the sound of it. It's really kind of a hard-sounding song, and almost a little too much for what it's trying to do, in my opinion, musically. But it's a great song. It's called Rain on the Scarecrow, and it's about the hardships of America's Midwest farmers. So it fits so perfectly today, I couldn't swap it out for something else, because I like some other John Cougar songs better. But I think that, like, this song was written a long time ago, and it's written from the standpoint of we need to preserve the farmer who grows corn and soy and things like that. We need to preserve the farmer who's basically managing thousands of acres of land. We need to preserve the farmer who survived when the Department of Ag back in the 70s told him to go big or go home. We need to preserve this way of life even if we don't understand why we need to. And I'm not putting the people that do the work down for Pete's sake. But maybe the reason it's so hard for farmers to survive is they're selling a dirt-cheap crop and every single thing they do is based on debt. In fact, that's what this song is about, about how much debt it takes to be a farmer. So maybe the solution isn't yelling at the banker. Maybe the solution isn't doing a farm aid type thing that won't really move the needle. Maybe the solution is changing the way that we farm. Just a thought. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Pay the loan, couldn't buy the seed of plant.
Yeah. 